Let us pray. Eternal God, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do that we might be your obedient and faithful people. Through Christ the living word, amen. Our scripture lesson, our primary scripture lesson this morning is from the book of Isaiah. It has to do with the call of Isaiah to be a prophet. You can find this in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 through 8. I encourage you to open to that, and we will look at it together as a part of the uh, sermon this morning. Let me now welcome those who are worshiping with us by way of live streaming. Uh, we're glad that you've joined with us uh, today, and for those who are worshiping next door in our Rejoice service as well. Uh, if you're over in the Rejoice service, you might want to have a bulletin in front of you. We will be looking at the bulletin uh, that's going to outline how we worship and uh, have uh, uh, your Bible with you as well. Once again, I encourage you to bring your Bible with you to worship. I think that's a helpful thing to do. It's a tool you have in your hand. You can make notes and use it. And uh, the more notes you make, the more you read it, the more helpful it will be. Nothing we do as the people of God, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as members of this community of faith is more important than what we do when we worship together. Worship is at the heart of who we are as individuals and as a community of faith. And I don't think most people realize how significant and important participation in worship is. So many of us regard worship simply as an option, as a choice. It is neither of those, or it's far more than those. Worship of God is actually mandated. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. It's the first thing God expects of his people. You shall have no other gods before me. We're instructed how to worship in the scriptures. It's central to our witness. The first thing you can do to witness to your faith is simply to show up and to be present at worship. It's a witness to the larger community. And the more of us who are together, the greater the witness is to others who are curious about what goes on inside walls of churches like this and how important that may or may not be and what relevance it might have to the living of our lives. How we worship is a primary part of our heritage as Protestants and as Presbyterians in particular, going all the way back to Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, to William Farrell, John Calvin in Geneva, to John Knox in Scotland. One of the things the Reformation brought to Christendom was a radical transformation in how we worship the living God. Many superstitious and strange practices had entered into the worship of the church prior to the Reformation. There was a lot of magic going on, and this was all rejected by the Reformers. And they maintained and taught that the worship of the living God must have a biblical warrant. It's not what we want to do when it comes to worship. It is what God expects us to do when it comes to worship. Our worship should have theological integrity. We do things for a purpose. We don't sing a hymn simply because we haven't sung a hymn in five minutes. Every hymn we sing serves a purpose. The music you hear, the prayers that you will help to offer, they all fit into the rubric of how we understand what is going on in worship. And the reformers insisted that worship have a biblical warrant, that it have theological integrity, 
that it be simple. That is to say that it be free of pompous and theatrical things that only glorify man and don't glorify God. And that worship should be edifying. That is to say it should build us up as people of faith and it should build the church up as well. And the final thing the reformers taught, and this is what I want to focus on today, is that our worship of the living God ought to be intentional, intelligible, and comprehensible. We need to understand what's going on in worship and why we worship as we do. We can do a lot of things by rote, but we should never worship God by rote. What we do in worship needs to be intentional and understood by each and every one of us. Nevertheless, there's much worship that goes on in the life of churches today that has little criteria, biblical criteria, that informs it. And unfortunately, much worship today in the church is just based on the whims and the personal preferences of the preachers or the musicians or whatever. It's whatever serves our purposes, whatever meets and suits our needs, and that's the way we plan a worship service. Whatever promises to bring more people in. What can we offer to kind of tempt people to come in? But our focus in worship is not to be what meets our needs, but what meets the needs of God. And I'll say more about this in a minute. minute. Surely there are more compelling reasons to worship the, the living God than simply what appeals to us personally because we all have our own private and personal taste for what we like and don't like but I'm going to tell you this morning worship's not about us it's about God I want us to look together at uh, the experience of Isaiah when he is called to be a prophet in the sixth chapter because this is the rubric we're using to kind of shape our worship service this isn't the only way to do worship it's a way and it's a way that we have adopted And I was pleased to see the order of worship this church uses when I came here because I think it has a lot of validity to it. And we're tweaking it just a little. You'll see some changes in the bulletin um, going forward and this morning as well. But I want you to look at your bulletin. And we will also be glancing at uh, the sixth chapter of Isaiah. And you'll notice on the front of your bulletin that it says it's the fifth Sunday of Eastertide. We're still celebrating the resurrection. And we will until the day of Pentecost on June the 9th. Of course, we celebrate the resurrection. Every Sunday is a mini Easter, as it were. So we never forget the resurrection. It's at the heart of our faith. But we're still in the season of Eastertide. And we mentioned that in the bulletin. A lot of people my age and older that grew up in the church don't remember the church ever talking about liturgical seasons. And we think, well, this is a new wrinkle for us as Presbyterians to talk about the the lectionary or the uh, liturgical year. It's not new at all. It was a part of our history originally. It was only because of the influence of the Puritans that we got away from a lot of that. Because the Puritans believed strongly, if you couldn't find it in Scripture, it had no place in worship. So no organs, no stained glass windows, no celebrating of Christmas. And while the Puritans had many wonderful traits from which we can learn... I don't think one of their strengths was how they worship. Frankly, I think it was colorless and joyless and somewhat boring. And worship should never be any of those. So the designation of what uh, Sunday this is in the liturgical year simply reminds us of the 
the festival seasons of Christianity and also of the life of Christ because the liturgical year begins with the promise of the coming of the Christ in Advent and ends with the celebration of Christ the King Sunday when we celebrate Christ who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we rehearse his whole life every year as we go through the liturgical calendar. Now notice that our worship service is called the service for the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day, sometimes called a Christian Sabbath. But our Book of Common Worship designates what we do on Sunday in worship as the service for the Lord's Day and has particular parts to it. Our order, once again, is based on this experience of Isaiah that I want us to look at. And we'll look first at the first three verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings with, wings. with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What's going on here? Isaiah is a spiritually sensitive man. The king of Judah has died. A popular king, a faithful king, a beloved king. And we're not told when, if this was immediately after the king's death, if Isaiah was simply trying to cope with this loss for his nation, his people, and himself. But something brought him to the temple. And when he enters the temple, he has this magnificent vision of the majesty and the glory of the living God. And he is moved to praise God with the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is what we sang this morning, right? Same hymn. When you are aware of the nearness of God and the majesty of God, and that's what our prelude and voluntaries prepare us to do is to recognize whose presence is here with us. When we know that we are in the presence of the living God, we are moved to praise. We don't have words adequate to express our praise, but we express as best we can through our words, through our music, our adoration of the living God. And we've added a prayer of adoration to amplify this part of the service. We have a vision of God. We should work on that vision, what we're seeing when we come into worship. We should prepare to worship God. We ought not stumble into God's presence in some kind of casual or cavalier manner. We take our preparation seriously. We've even added a prayer on the front of the bulletin and will continue to do so to help us prepare our hearts and minds to worship the God in whose presence we are. We'll have a call to worship. Do you understand what a call to worship is? We're not calling God to worship. God's already here. God is calling us to worship. And so our call to worship is a scriptural uh, verse or verses chosen by the minister who's putting the service together that day, reminding us of God's call, of God's presence, and of our need and desire to respond. It is God who initiates worship. You and I are only responding to God's initiative. And, of course, Isaiah's first movement in worship is to praise the God in whose presence he is. With the singing of praise, the adoration of God. And the next thing that happens when we know we're in God's presence is we are doubly conscious of our own sinfulness and unworthiness. 
And so what happened to Isaiah in the temple happens to us when we worship. We're moved to confess our sins. In the clearer light of God's proximity, we see ourselves better with all of our faults and failings, with our willful rebellion, with our destructive attitudes, our proud pretensions. And so we confess to God, and God forgives us. And we hear the assurance of pardon. I prefer the term assurance of pardon rather than declaration of pardon because some people think that the minister is declaring them forgiven. No, the minister doesn't have the authority to do that. The minister is only reminding the worshipers of the promises of Scripture. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Isaiah confesses his sin and know that it's both corporate and personal. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We say the same thing, don't we? Yes, we're individually sinners, but look around. You're in a church full of sinners this morning. We all have our flaws and failings. And so as a corporate body and as individuals, we confess. And we respond to our pardon and our forgiveness, usually by singing a verse of a hymn, uh, something that celebrates our deliverance, Uh, And we share the peace of Christ with our neighbor because those of us who have been forgiven have the obligation to forgive others and to share that grace that we have received with others as well. And then comes the third movement in worship, and that's listed in your bulletin. You'll see as the Word of God. This is what has been primary throughout our history for people of a Reformed and Presbyterian faith. It centers on the Word of God as it is read, We usually read at least two passages, one from the Hebrew Scriptures, one from the New Testament. We can read more. Some Sundays we uh, tweak that a bit. But we have the word read. We have the word proclaimed, which is the sermon. And that's important, but it's not all important. And some people would try to make the sermon, and who's delivering the sermon, all important. It's not. It's whatever communicates God's word to us no matter who's communicating it and that's important to rightly hear read and interpret and apply the word of God that is why we require our clergy to be trained so that they can be equipped to do that with us and for us and train us to do the same thing before we read the scripture we have a prayer of illumination why because we can't rightly read or interpret the word without the Holy Spirit being at work within us to enable us to hear rightly And to apply appropriately what God is saying to us. How else does God speak to us? Well, he speaks to us through the sacrament. So whenever we have a sacrament like baptism of the Lord's Supper, we will list it in the bulletin as the word enacted. It is a dramatization of some truth of the gospel. In baptism, that we are claimed and loved by God before we're even capable of responding to that. With the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the sacrifice necessary by our God in order to redeem and reclaim us, his wayward children. So the word of God is central. Usually it's reflected in the church's architecture. So you can go into most churches and you can tell what matters preeminently in their worship. If you go to a highly liturgical church like a Catholic or an Episcopal church, what you see, what you focus on is the altar because where where the mass is said is the central part of the worship service you may have to look uh, hard to to find a pulpit in some of those churches 
By the same token, in some Reformed or Protestant churches, you may have to look far, hard to find where the sacrament is communi- uh, conducted, the communion table or the baptismal font. I really am thrilled that this church not only has a pulpit that's very evident, a lectern for where the word is read, but also we have in the center the baptismal font and the communion table. So we're focusing on all of that. The word comes to us read, proclaimed, and enacted in the sacraments. This too is part of our heritage, the centrality of the word read and proclaimed. And this too goes back to Zwingli in Zurich and Farrell and Calvin in Geneva, John Knox in Edinburgh. Uh, It's always been central uh, in our worship, uh, the word of God. It's demonstrated when we process in and we have a beetle to place. I don't know if we use the term beetle. That's what the person is that brings in the Bible and places it in a central place. Because what the Word says is more important than who's saying it. What the Word says is more important than our choristers or our musicians or our preachers for the day. The Word is central. And our duty is to listen for the Word and respond to it. And Isaiah heard the Word when he was in the temple after he had confessed his sin. Here am I, then he responds, send me. We're obligated to respond to the word when we hear it. Scripture teaches it's not the hearers of the word, it's the doers who are justified in the sight of God. So the question is, what are we going to do about the word that we have heard? Because worship that doesn't change us somehow is not very effective worship. In fact, it's sterile. So it's very important, you see, that we understand the movement, what's taking place in worship and why we're doing what we do. We respond to the Word of God in several ways. We sing a hymn of commitment that's usually based on the theme of whatever the worship is for that day and what the Scriptures is teaching. We profess our faith. Karl Barth, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, said whenever the Word of God is heard and proclaimed, there needs to be an affirmation of faith by the people of God. We stand and say what it is we believe as individuals and what we believe as a community of faith. That's the way we, we respond. We respond with the giving of our tithes and offerings and the commitment of our very lives. The offering is not just about our money. It is representative of what we have to give to God and to worship God. Not only in our worship in the sanctuary, but our worship in the world. This is how we commit. And this is a particular wrinkle in the worship of the church that came from the American experience because prior to the church coming to the to America offering was not always taken up in a worship service I hesitate to mention that some people they'd love to resume that that practice but in the American church it was a part of worship to receive the offering because these people that were bringing their faith to these shores often came from Countries where the state supported the church or the king or the, uh, the landowners, those with means supported the church. And the, it was not expected of the common people so much. Not so in America. We all are priests, priesthood of all believers. We share equally in the support and the governance of the church. And so after we've received the offering, we have, usually we sing a doxology of praise. We have a prayer of dedication It's my prayer that when we leave worship that 
we will leave not simply entertained or amused or impressed by the architecture or the, the gifts of the musicians or the talents of the choristers or the eloquence of the preachers for the day, but we leave worship challenged and changed because that's what worship is supposed to do. And when you come in here for worship, you need to be expecting that to happen. In fact, you need to be praying that that will happen. That God will change you in some way so that you can better serve as his disciples, as his children. Now let me just add this because it needs to be said in a day like this. Because it's not understood by a lot of people when it comes to worship. But worship is not finally about us. Worship is about God. And we don't plan worship about, around what our particular interests or persuasions or biases may be. And we all have them. Biases about the preaching, biases about the time, biases about the place, biases about the music. I don't care whether you love Baroque or bluegrass. It's not the style of the music. It's what purpose the music is serving and how it blends in with the theme of the day. I'm afraid that a lot of worship in America is planned only around what satisfies the most people. And when we're trying to satisfy ourselves in worship, we're not worshiping the living and the true God. We worship God as God expects to be worshiped and as we are obligated to worship him. Do you understand who the audience is for worship? God is the audience. You are not the audience. We are not the audience. God is the audience. And we are the practitioners. We are the performers who are offering our very best to the living God. And so worship that is effective is worship that enables you to bless God. And hopefully you'll be blessed in the process. But we don't structure all of our worship about what, around what really pleases you. It's not based on the numbers. If it was based on the numbers, we'd give out sausage biscuits when you're coming in every day and maybe have a little scotch for you. It depends on who we're trying to uh, please when we draw people here. But it's not about us. It's about God. So don't come in expecting your needs to be met alone. Come in expecting that you are to offer your best to God. And in the process, I think you will find yourselves, yourselves being challenged and changed and that's what's needed one of the things we need to do in this transitional period of our church is recommit ourselves to participation in weekly worship because I can look at the statistics and the staff's been looking at this in the past 10 years we've gone from averaging a little less than 900 a week to a little less than 500 a week and all of us know that if you just keep doing the same things expecting different results then you're spinning your wheels in vain. So we're going to be looking at new ways to worship, new experiences in worship. And yes, we want to draw more people in, but the way we're primarily going to draw people in is when you get excited about what happens here, you get trained and equipped and empowered to minister, then you will draw your friends and your neighbors in to worship with you. It's my prayer that our worship together will help us to do exactly that as we prepare for the new minister who will be called to serve in this congregation in the coming years.
Let us pray. Eternal God, by your grace, enable us as your people in our corporate worship as we seek to to see you more clearly and love you more dearly and follow you more nearly through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.